Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. On this podcast, we create content to try and help you find a job and a life that you really love. And today, I had a really great guest on the show. He's called Ben Wakefield. And Ben's a senior analyst at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is a think tank. It's actually one of the world's top think tanks, like really, really premier. And if you don't know what a think tank is, that's fine, because we get into all of that during the episode. But essentially, Ben does some really, really interesting work around biosecurity, health emergency preparedness and response, civilian and military collaboration, um, basically looking at all these major international health threats, either deliberate or accidental around the world, and trying to advise either government or other parts of the public on how to act and respond to those. So he's in a busy few years, but it's just a really interesting space. And the reason I wanted to talk to him is, is this. So for the last couple of months, I've been going through this journey of deciding what I want to do with my own next step. And that's why I started recording this podcast, because I'm talking to all these interesting people, and I wanted to record those conversations and share them with others. And so I've been following this process, and I outlined that in episode seven of this podcast, to help me design my life, to figure out what it is that I want to do next. And as I went through this process, one of the paths that I wanted to explore more was that of working in a think tank. And the reason was when I did some of these exercises and I looked at the things that I really enjoyed from a day-to-day -day basis, one of the big things that came up was I just love learning new things. I loved researching topics and especially big, scary international topics. I just kind of nerd out on that kind of thing. And another thing that came up for me was that I really do care about having a positive social impact. And when I looked at those two things, an idea that came up for me was, well, maybe a think tank, maybe that's a good place that I can go and work. And if you've listened to episode seven, you'll know that the next part of that process is once you've got an idea, you need to go and prototype it and really learn what that, what it is actually like to work in that industry. And I knew nothing about it. I had no idea what it's actually like to work in a think tank, how think tanks work, if I could even ever get a job in them, how much money they get paid, nothing, didn't know any of this. And I started to think, well, who do I know who works in this area? And I thought of Ben. And I hadn't talked to Ben in, honestly, maybe seven or eight years. So I met him when I moved to Australia in 2014 to go to uni. And we were really uh, good pals. We played on the same rugby team. Uh, but I hadn't talked to him since. So I shot him a you know, LinkedIn cold email out of the blue. I was like, hey, let's chat. And Ben was so good. He was in Japan at the time with work. And he was super busy. But we eventually found time to chat. And I just really appreciated it because I learned so much from this conversation. I basically got answers to all of the questions that I wanted to know about what it's like to follow this type of career. I also talked about loads of other different things as well, which were um, really interesting and fun to talk about. And so to give you just a bit of a teaser for some of the things that we discussed, we went really deep on what a think tank is, how that whole industry works and what they do to try and make a positive impact on the world. We also talked a lot about what Ben's day-to-day -day life looked like. How much does he travel? How much is he at home? You know, how he works remotely in London, what that's like. Um, but then specifically, what's he spending his day doing? And he gave really, really good answers to that in a lot of depth that helped me understand what it would be like to actually work in this job. 
Then we talked about how, if you did want to pursue this path, how you could get into it. And it's tricky, right? The acceptance rates for these top think tanks is unfortunately very, very low. So you need to have a good plan if it is something that you want to go and do. So we talk about some of the paths that are available, both getting into think tanks, but then also on the far side of it, like what do the career opportunities look like for you there? And he was really good at sharing a lot of maybe a bit insider knowledge on that as well. Um, some of the other things we talk about outside of, you know, the think tank and the specific work that he does. We thought about we talked about his thoughts on leading a happy life. And he's got some really um, nice kind of structures and ways that he thinks about this. We talked about the values that he learned from playing rugby and how he brings them into his everyday life. We also talked about some of the things that he does outside of work to bring him joy. So um, I love talking about this because he stopped playing rugby a few years ago and he said that it left a bit of a gap for him, um, both in terms of uh, that kind of team environment, but then also, you know, a challenge and a sense of accountability for something to do. And so he picked up running and he went full ham on that. Like he done ultramarathons and stuff but we talked about why he does that and kind of the the joy and satisfaction that he gets from that and then the last thing which honestly is probably not really to do anything with the topic of this general podcast but i just nerded out on it because i was so interested i asked him what are some of the things that he's learned from all of the research he's done over the years the people he spoke to what are some of those things that would most surprise me and he had some unbelievable answers. And we just nerded out on those for a little while as well. They really blew my mind. So if you are in any way interested in this kind of what a think tank is, what life is like to work as a researcher in one of these think tanks, if that's a path that you're in any way interested in, um, if you're interested in, you know, delivering a big social impact this is a really good episode but he just talks through it end to end in complete detail which is awesome he's a very nice communicator as well and um, but then of course like all of our episodes we talk about his life and those other things but even if you're not interested solely in working in the think tank it's a very enjoyable episode to listen to okay Ben, my first question is, when you were a kid, was there something that you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes. So I always wanted to be in the military um, because I, so I grew up in Colchester, which is where the parachute regiment is based. And every year they always had this um, big military fair on the, on the local fields. I'd go every year and I was quite into my military history growing up and all that kind of thing. So it's sort of from a kid, you know, and all, when you're a kid, you always run around playing army and all that kind of stuff. But I always wanted to be a military officer. And that was kind of always my goal um, growing up. And then there are there different iterations of what that might look like. Sometimes it was, oh, I want to be in a parachute regiment. Other times it was, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, I could, you know, I could do a medical degree and be an army doctor or something like that. But I was always kind of focused on the military. Um, and I actually nearly... Um, I actually nearly joined straight after A-levels and when I was 18 because um, in my final year of school, I um, I did a couple of visits to different regiments. So I, I went to Bovington for a week and did a potential officers course. And then I did a Sandhurst familiarization weekend as well, where you spend sort of the whole weekend at Sandhurst. And it's very similar to the selection process. So I did that and I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to, 
I'm just going to, I don't want to wait anymore. I'm just going to go and do it. And my dad had a conversation with me. He sort of said, well, you know, military is great and you'd be a great officer, but maybe you should go to university first and then do it afterwards. You know, I think it's sort of 85% or 90% of officers at the time sort of have university degrees. And I was always going to go to university as well. So he kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, and then I, you know, I went to university and I, I, yeah, I, I did my undergrad and I studied abroad and I did a master's as well. And then by the time I finally graduated, um, I couldn't actually join the military because my eyesight had got too bad. Because I, I, so I, yeah, so I, I used to wear glasses and I had a really bad prescription, right? So um, it was okay when I was 18, just about, it was just in the regulations. But then, you know, six years later when I finished all my university studies, um, it was then outside the regulations. So then I couldn't pass the medical to join. Um, so then that, that kind of sort of, that disappeared, that option, but that was one of the things I was always focused on. Out of interest, would they have kicked you out if you had gone in earlier and then your eyesight had deteriorated? Like, how does that work? So if you get in, it's much easier to sort of navigate bending the rules when you're already in apparently. Um, but if you're out, then it's much more difficult. And I, I could have gone through sort of a medical appeal process. But um, I was sort of 25 at that time. Um, I'd already got a job at Chatham House as well. And I thought, well, I, I, I was thinking about doing that. I, I went and got laser eye surgery. So I don't wear glasses anymore. Got laser surgery. Then found out even if you have laser surgery and your eyesight's perfect, you can't join if your eyesight was outside the regulation before you had the surgery. So I still would have had to do an appeal. And it kind of dragged on a bit. And I was like, you know what, this, this path is closed for me, but I'll do, I'll do something else. But yeah, that was that was the thing I always wanted to do. Interesting. I'm thinking about um, that scene in Pearl Harbor where they have to pass like the um, the eyesight test, and he's like memorized, you know, all the letters across the thing, and he's like, you know, "Don't take my wings away." <laughs> I did think about doing something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting. So, was it, was your dad in the military then? No, he he also wanted to join, but his dad talked him out of it. Um, because his dad was in the RAF, but um, yeah, he he sort of talked him out of it. And I said, no, no, just join the family business and become a surveyor. Um, so he did that and, you know, did well from it. But he always said to me, you know, you should do what you want to do. And if you want to, you want to join the military, you should. But um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out. But yeah, from a kid, that's, that was kind of what I always wanted to do. But then as I, I grew up, there were also different things I thought about. Because I, I remember when I was, you know, when at GCSEs, you've got to choose your subjects and you've got to choose your A-levels and it starts setting you on a path to, you know, the direction you're going to go. And I, at that point, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. So I thought, do I want to do medicine? Do I want to do law? Do I want to do, you know, English literature? So even that sort of 16, I was thinking about all of those things. And so then, so how do you just, because you obviously didn't end up in the military, as you said, right? So how do you describe what you do now? So... I work, it's a little bit complicated what I do in my current role that I've just moved into. But I, so I'm a, I'm a policy researcher, I would say, um, in health security is my, my field. So the first job I had, which I've just left, so I was at Chatham House, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Um, I was there for five years as a researcher, um, working in the global health program. Um, and the work that I did there was sort of at the intersection of international security and global health issues. So things like 
infectious diseases, um, outbreaks, pandemics, um, deliberate use of infectious diseases, so bioterrorism, biological weapons, um, how those kinds of issues impact the world, how to help prevent or mitigate them, how to improve responses to them, um, that kind of stuff. But a think tank, I mean, I can go back a little bit and sort of explain what a think tank is, because it's if you don't know if you don't know what a think tank is, it's just a little bit of a bizarre sounding word, to be honest. Um, but a, a think tank is essentially a institute or organization of researchers who work on policy relevant issues. So it's different from academia in that your researching is spe- you, you, your researching is used specifically to influence policy or public opinion or government actions. So it has a real world impact and a, a direct real world link to the work that you're doing, where some elements of academic work might be more theoretical or in the pursuit of knowledge, but not necessarily bridge the gap into policymaking, something like that. But there's a, there's a big overlap between, yeah, there's a big overlap between people that work in academia and people that work in think tanks. Um, and interestingly, now I'm based at a research center, which is attached to a university. So I work for a university now, but I'm not an academic. Um, but I do, but I do research there, so it, it gets a little bit complicated, um, in that sense. Did that? Did that make sense? I think there's a little bit of a roundabout way of explaining it. No, I, I actually think it makes perfect sense. But I do have a couple more questions because I'm very interested in it. Okay, hold up one second. I'm sorry to have to interrupt this episode, but I do want to remind you that. If you want more content on how to find a job and a life that you love, you can find it on our socials. So on Instagram, go to Two Road Pod, and on LinkedIn, just find my personal account called Steve Duke. And of course, these podcasts are released weekly where I interview people, and that's extremely helpful for people to get inspiration and hear other people's stories and what how they did it and what they're going through. But I also release a ton of other content as well to help you both figure out what it is that you want to do and also how to then make that actually happen. So LinkedIn and Instagram and LinkedIn, Steve Duke, just my name. And then on Instagram, you can find us at two roads pod. So like what is typically like the outcome of your work or that of a think tank? You're obviously hoping to influence policy, but you know, are you writing papers, hosting discussions? Like what's kind of the tool that you have to implement um, or to affect policy? Yeah, good question. And I should also start by saying that not all think tanks are the same. And within that sort of banner of think tanks as, as a type of institution, you've got a huge range of different um, types of institutions. So some Chatham House, where I worked before, is independent. It's an international affairs think tank. So all the work that they do is focused on international affairs. They're independent, so they don't have a political leaning. They're not left or right wing. They don't take political positions on things. Um, sometimes the researchers at that institute might disagree with each other even on different issues. Um, whereas other think tanks are specifically partisan organizations. So you might get a right-wing economic think tank that only works on promoting um, right-wing economics. Or you might have a left-wing think tank that only works on promoting those kinds of ideas. So there, there, is, a, there is a range of the types of institutes that you get under the think tank banner. And I think also that then impacts the kind of work they do as well. But you mentioned sort of 
papers, events, convening, and those are all uh, typical outputs that you would have working at a think tank. So you might, as part of a research process, you might conduct a load of interviews, um, you might host a roundtable of experts and practitioners and policymakers to gather their views on things, write up all those um, pieces of information, combine them, put them in a, a digestible policy brief document. So, you know, you bring all that information together and it's easy to read. It's not too long. It's clear. It's concise. It has um, obvious recommendations that you can then hand to the right people so that they can read it and um, easily understand all the work that you've done. Um, but in, in other instances, you might you might host a panel discussion on an event and invite um, you know academics or uh, members of parliament or heads of state to come and talk about the issue, and then that can be sort of live streamed or it might be something in person. But all of those kinds of things are a, a typical uh, bits of work that you might do at a think tank. And when you talk about, say, like handing, you know, like reports to the quote unquote, like right people, is that like the policymakers and the politicians or like who specifically are kind of reading these end reports? Another good question. And that depends entirely on who you're trying to influence or, or what the work is about. So in some cases, it might be policymakers. It might be, um, you know, in, in some really high profile pieces of work, it might be heads of state. It might be um top level ministers that are responsible for certain departments or issue areas. In other cases, it might be members of the public. You know, you want to inform members of the public on a certain issue. Um, so it, the audience depends on the piece of work that you're doing, but that's something that would be determined at the start of a project. And it depends on sort of how, how much influence you're trying to have during that part of the part of the project, if that makes sense. Cause some because also some think tanks um do conduct advocacy so they will sort of advocate for the work that they've done and try and get you know um get it in front of people others chatham house doesn't do advocacy for instance it publishes stuff and it might disseminate that information but it will let other people advocate um using that material if that makes sense and then that's different to lobbying as well so it it there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of nuance in the kind of work that's done. So what's the lobbying side of it then? I, I suppose lobbyists are set are obviously separate and they have an agenda that they are trying to lobby decision makers to, to follow. And they might not necessarily have any evidence for that. It might just be for a particular set of interests. Whereas the output from a think tank that people might use to advocate for a policy change They'll be using that evidence base to say, here's the evidence that these researchers have produced. We think that you should follow some of these recommendations, which I think is is different. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. And so um, as I'm listening to this, um, you know, I'm looking and I've read, you know, work, of course, that like different think tanks have done and whatever else. And it's usually very thoughtful. It's very well researched. It's very well communicated. And I kind of often think, wow, if this is how we're making policy decisions. Like that's great, but there's probably a, a, a reality that you know not everything that comes out of a think tank in terms of like the policies they're suggesting gets implemented, right? For lots of other reasons, I, the biggest one, of course, just being like the politics side of things. So, like, how, how I don't know. Can you give me a sense for how much you feel like these suggestions like get listened to and actually get implemented? 
Um, and is there any kind of like, I'm sure there's frustration, right? When, when, when they don't and other stuff gets in the way. Yeah. And I mean, that's the sort of million dollar question as well, isn't it? Um, how, cause doing the research and having the recommendations is almost the easy part, but getting it, someone to listen to it and then implement it in a political system is, is much more difficult. And then even beyond that, showing that you're the reason that they implemented that decision is then even more difficult <laughs> because, um, unless unless a policymaker says you know i'm i'm changing this this policy to this and i'm doing it because of this paper and sort of waves it about it's very difficult to draw a direct connection but i think you can always you can always try to draw um draw links between the work that you've done and and some real world impact um i'm trying to think of a specific example but so some going back to my particular niche and I wanted to broaden it out at the start when talking about think tanks because I, I recognize it's easy to get stuck in my bubble where it's all international affairs, it's international security, it's global health. But, you know, think tanks can work on domestic issues and uh, and all sorts of different things that are outside my wheelhouse. But in, in the work that I've done, we did a lot of work on um, the relationship between funding countries, so sort of um, high-income countries who are then supporting low-income countries to develop laboratories in their own country. Um, so typically, historically, that had been done where a, a donor country would come along and say, here's a five million pound facility. We're going to put it in your country because we think that's what you should do. And then it gets put in. And then after that, people go, oh, we haven't thought about how much it's going to cost to power this facility. Is the electrical grid, um, you know, stable enough to actually keep the refrigerators on in, in the, um, in the lab with the samples do we have enough money to keep paying um people's salaries from the national public health budgets um do does does the country's public health system even want this lab or is it just being pushed on them by a donor country um so we our project we were trying to change that and make it more of an equitable relationship between the host country and the funding partner so that it would be driven by the needs and the local context of that country and that you know all of these um, common sense things could be accounted for. So we did a, a big piece of work on that. And then that led on to um, countries using a tool that we made to decide whether they needed to put a lab in or not, or refurbish existing labs. So people started using that tool. And then I think we can say, oh, well, we improved this um, process. And therefore the the facilities that went into that country because we did that work. Um and following on from that, in that sort of biosecurity space, we did a bit more work on uh, what kind of working with the Africa Centre for Disease Control, looking at you know what what kind of assistance would they need from funding countries to improve the biosecurity in the region? Um, how could their their five year strategy be supported by this group of funding countries? Um, and we did a, a few different reports and meetings around that. And now some of the outcomes of that are being implemented. So regional centers of excellence are being set up there. So that's a, I'm not saying it's because of, because of the work that we did. There's lots of people involved, many institutions, you know, Africa CDC drove it. So did the, the country governments that were involved as well in Africa and the, and the funders as well. But you can see a, a stepping stone of links. to we did some work that supported that. And now these centers of excellence are being set up. So I think, you can see an impact there. Um, but, 
But sometimes you might write something, you get it to a policymaker, they go, this is a brilliant idea, but the minister's not going to agree to it. So it's not going to happen, not under this government, not at this time, not in this you know setting. So that can be frustrating. Um, but I think maybe less frustrating than being the civil servant that has to say, this is a great idea, but I can't get it to work. I think that would be more frustrating. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so I've got kind of like two more questions in terms of like how think tanks actually work, because I'm just really interested and I don't know much about it. So like what what is the goal of a of an individual think tank? So I know there might be, say, as you said, there might be ones who might be much more left-leaning or more right-leaning. And I can imagine that their goal is to promote policies in line with you know their beliefs. But, you know, for ones that are not those, right, or 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 does every does every kind of think tank have some sort of um, overarching policy stance and and their view is to try and promote those or yeah like I mean, I mean like if you're you know if I'm if I'm leading one of these think tanks what's my goal and like how do I know if I'm doing well or not I think almost every think tank would have a mission um, and it it might not necessarily be for a particular policy but it will be a sort of an end goal. Um, you might have a domestic think tank that works on um, homelessness issues and their, their mission might be to improve the lives of people experiencing homelessness or you know, improve the housing situation in, or support networks in X, Y, Z area, that kind of thing. Um, for Chatham House, um, which is an international affairs think tank, the, the overarching mission of that institute is to promote a sustainable, just and peaceful world. So quite a big mission but um if you think you've got you've got regional programs so programs that focus on africa or, or russia and eurasia or the americas um you've got programs like the one that i used to work in the global health program that focus on global health international law international security all these different areas that then support that mission but those individual programs will then have submissions as well of you know things that they want to achieve and then individual projects themselves will have, you know, policy goals and objectives of, of small changes that they want to make. Um, so I think it fit. Most think tanks will have this big overarching mission, and then the programs underneath them will have submissions that support that. And then individual projects will have objectives and goals that you know are the little steps towards causing um, that impact. And I think that's pretty universal. And do they tend to be funded, like, are they not-for-profits typically and, like, funded by donors? Or is there a different kind of business model? Typically, they're not-for-profits and non-governmental organizations. Um, there may there may be some for-profit think tanks, but it's not, not something that I've been involved in or been interested in. So, you know, all the, all the think tanks that I've worked for and have worked with have been not-for-profit. Um, and the funding models vary across think tanks. So if you have a if you have a partisan or a political think tank, they will probably be funded by um, interested parties to you know promote those kinds of that kind of um, thinking and that kind of um, worldview. Um, where I work now at Johns Hopkins University at the Center for Health Security, uh, we're funded by a range of different funders. Some 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 funders um, give us money to support. Um, various activities across the board so we can decide what kind of work we do 
Um, otherwise, we will design a project and then submit it to a funder. So we get government funding, multilateral funding, um, so and and philanthropic philanthropic funding as well. So I'm I've worked on projects funded by um, the the UK government across various departments, the US government, Canadian government, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, um, Open Philanthropy, Effective Giving. Um, different philanthropic organizations um, had some subcontracts from um, the World Health Organization or um, other UN organizations as well. Um, so it, it varies. And and because where I've worked has been, in, we've generally have been independent institutions that, um, are, that are nonpartisan and, and sort of have these big missions of, you know, improving. So where I'm working out the Hopkins Center for Health Security is, um, I'm not sure of our exact mission off the top of the top of my head, but it's it the the goals are to sort of improve the way the world can detect, prevent, respond to, and prepare for um, infectious disease outbreaks, whether they're natural, deliberate, or accidental. I think would be a fair way of encapsulating that mission. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty big mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially over the last few years, it's um it's been a pretty interesting area to be working in um but yeah so we we get funding from lots of different places yeah governments philanthropics multilateral organizations um and we do that to try and keep some independence over the work as well um because there's a diff because i think and I, I, i'd be interested to hear your take on it because sometimes i think it, some of the work could be perceived as similar to how a consultancy might work in that a, go, a government asks, gives you money to do a project that helps support what they're doing. But I think some of the things that what, what we do and what I did at Chatham House is we will design the projects. We will say this is an, there's a need for this work to be done. And then we will say to funders, um, we need this amount of money. Which, could you contribute to it? As opposed to someone coming with money and saying, could you do this for us? which I think is different as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. No, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Because I, from the outside in, that would have been some of the skepticism that I would have had towards, uh, you know, either consulting or um, or think tanks, right? It's like, well, what's the incentive of that think tank? And, you know, ultimately where my uneducated brain goes to is lobbyists in the US, right? And it's just like, well, they're going to come up with whatever evidence like supports the policy stance that they're getting paid to support right but i i can totally see like you know with the um organizations that are funded um, from a lot of different sources or you know unbiased sources whatever you want to call them like that that seems like a nice place to work right because then you feel like you're you have a bit more freedom to actually pursue truth in your research as opposed to something that's going to support like a specific stance so i want to kind of dig into more so, so first of all, thank you so much for that crash course in think tank um, structure and business model. I hope it wasn't too convoluted. No, it was really good, actually. It was really, really good because I hadn't a clue. And I think now I have a, have a much better idea and hopefully listeners do too. Um, but I want to dig into, you know, what your work specifically looks like, you know, because uh, you mentioned some really cool projects there. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. But you know, what does a day, a typical day look like? I don't know if you were to pick a day this week or last week and maybe talk me through what that might look like. Um, at, at the moment it is, 
it's really varied. And now that I've moved across to Hopkins, um, there's a lot of travel involved in the work that I'm doing. Um, and there, and there was, there was when I was at Chatham house as well, but then, you know, two and a half years of that was during the pandemic as well. So that kind of shut down a lot. I mean, the work I was talking to you about earlier, um, uh, with the, uh, the laboratories project and trying to make that a more equitable partnership. A lot of the work that we did, um, convening experts and practitioners we did that in west africa so we would fly the team there and then we'd bring together um practitioners people that worked in the lab doctors um political um you know members of the political system um all together in africa because it was much easier to 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 do that in the in the regions that we're talking about rather than doing it from london and saying oh this is what this is what we think africa needs which is the wrong way of doing things so we took our you know our team of three over there and then the meetings were 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 formed of african experts african practitioners who knew the context knew the settings so i did a bit of travel with chatham house before then we had the pandemic and then it that all died down and then it started picking up again um, but now I've moved to Hopkins. I think about 20% of my time I'm traveling at the moment um, across various projects. Um, so let me try and think. I'll, I'll, I'll give you just a couple of different snapshots of, of things that I've been working on over the, over the coming, the, the past few weeks. Um, so you tend to work on two, three, four projects at a time. And all of these projects might be in different phases of the project lifecycle. Um, so in the last few weeks, I've had... Uh, I've been working with WHO, which we've been working on this project for two, two and a half years. Um, and that's looking at how to, how to improve civilian and military collaboration for health emergency preparedness. So how can the civilian system be supported by the military in, um, in emergencies? And how can we shift that to the preparedness phase so we know what's going to happen ahead of time? rather than waiting for everything to get overwhelmed and then bringing the military in saying, oh, the military can sort everything out. It's an emergency. Um, so trying to sm streamline that process, learn from COVID responses and learn from the experiences that countries across the world have had with their militaries. Um, so we've been doing that for a couple of years. This project is just finishing. So the, the last few weeks on that project, I've been writing up all the findings with some of my colleagues. So we've been drafting guidance for WHO, drafting an academic article to accompany that, um, and doing a lot of writing, a lot, a lot of what you might imagine a researcher to be doing, you know, you know, writing these big documents, pulling out information from interviews and focus groups, that kind of stuff. Um, but that's that one specific part of that project, so sort of that write-up phase. But then at the same time, um, I've been working with colleagues on developing new projects. Um, so we've been brainstorming, um, you know, what are the current issues? What do we need to tackle? How can we put that into a project? Um, and then we took that some of those ideas to a, a G7-led meeting in Japan. Um, and I'm going to go in with another big name uh, acronym now. So there's a, a, a G7-led group called the Global Partnership Against the Spread of Weapons and Materials of Mass Destruction. And that was set up in 2002, um, just after 9-11 um, and when WMD issues were uh, at the sort of front of political thinking then as they, they still are, to be honest, um, for different reasons now. But um, that group works on nuclear issues, chemical issues, biological issues and radiological issues. But we're interested in the biosecurity, the biological aspect of that group um, because we work on natural events, but also deliberate events. Um, 
So we put together a bunch of different proposals. We went to this um, big global partnership meeting in Japan because Japan are the, the G7 presidents this year, so they were hosting. And then we took part in the biosecurity working groups there, which was you, there we're interfacing with different governments, so G7 governments, their ministries of defense, their foreign affairs units. Um, and we were saying, this is the work that we want to do. Is, is that of interest to you? Is that of interest to the global partnership? Um, do you think this is important? Is this something that you would fund? Um, would you like to work together with us on it? So then we're doing that kind of networking um, and proposal submission stage. So that's very different then to the writing stuff because you're, you're there in a sort of almost diplomatic environment talking to lots of different governments about what they're working on, what their issues are, what, what is in their funding mandate as well and then submitting that to them for sort of discussion and, and um, potential funding. Um, so, yeah, sitting at my desk writing up interview stuff into a big paper and then, you know, working with government officials in Tokyo the next day. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of, yeah, and I think that also makes it sound quite glamorous and it is at times, but there's also, it. I always say that if you're a think tank, if you're a researcher at Think Tank, you're usually working in pretty small teams as well. So sometimes I might be doing something like that. Other times I might be making a slide deck of um, who's who for a, a meeting, or I might be, you know, preparing a presentation to report on the, the project that we've been working on or to present to a, a group of stakeholders or policymakers, or I might be coordinating internal meetings to try and um, get the right people together to work on a new project or, um, catching up on different things so or you know maybe writing an invite for a, a roundtable meeting that's part of a, a project so you kind of and we we have coordinators and administrative staff as well who who do more of that but I think when you work as a think tank researcher you kind of do a little bit of everything so you do that traditional academic style research you interview people you do quantitative analysis if that's your skill set um you know, you write up findings, you analyze um, transcripts, that kind of stuff. Um, you do literature reviews and you write that stuff up. Other times you, you might have to do financial reporting on on a, on the budget for a project that you've got or, you know, write a narrative for a funder to tell them what you've done or, you know, you'd be booking your flights for a meeting in your hotel. It sounds kind of similar to um, when I was a consultant in some ways um, in terms of like, you know, you've got like some core you know, you've got core work on your project, which might be either um, people or stakeholder oriented or the actual work itself. Um, and then you've also got all this kind of peripheral work that has to, you know, make the show go on, whether that's internal or, you know, recruiting or whatever else it may be. So, okay, that, that gives me a good insight. Do you, um, do you like it? Uh, yeah, I, I love it. And I, I do like the variety as well, because sometimes you know, when you're doing this really big brain stuff of, you know, going through 50 interviews and trying to find themes and writing it all up, that can be quite, um, it's a lot of work to sit down for hours at a time and do that for your brain. So sometimes it's then nice to be like, okay, today I'm going to, I'm going to write invites for people for this meeting. And, you know, I'm going to do a spreadsheet of, of our invitees and who's, you know, what's their title, where do they work? And, you know, What's their expertise? All that kind of stuff. So you you get um, that organisational stuff, then you get that sort of intellectual stimulation as well. 
And then in the work that I do, you also get that face-to-face um, social element of it where you're you're networking with people, you're trying to find out what they're interested in, what they're working on, um, how you can collaborate, how you can link up what different people are doing. Because um, especially in the kind of work that I do, there's lots of different think tanks and institutes and NGOs that work on similar issues. Um, and if this was a private space, you might say that they were competitors. But obviously, when you're all trying to improve the world, I just see everyone as a collaborator, right? So no, I don't really see those people as competitors. They're, they're potential collaborators. And you, you, want, you want to know what other people are doing. So you're not doing the same thing. So you don't want to duplicate work. So you also get that part of that higher level strategic stuff of what are they working on? What are they working on? What could we work on? How can we best fill those gaps? That kind of stuff. So you do get a variety of, of um, different types of work, which I really like. But I also should say, I think, again, it's important to put that in the context of I do international work for the think tank that I work on. We have, we have people that work on US domestic health policy as well. So their day-to-day will be very different to mine. Um, because of the nature of the work that they do but fundamentally some of the stuff is similar but a lot of the travel stuff is because of i'm i focus mainly on international issues um, and do a lot of stuff with the un system and with different international groups that work on this these kinds of issues um which i think yeah is an is an important thing to note yep yep no that that's a good point um when you're talking there about like you know working in small teams and you're, it's also kind of like project based work um i'm thinking back to one of the things that i miss most from when i worked at mckinsey which is exactly that you would work in these like small teams and also you're typically working with like really motivated intelligent um good problem solving people so i used to find that work so enjoyable like i would just love getting in a room with that like core team of three or four and like working through stuff and is that something that you find in the work that you do either you know in in think tanks does it tend to attract that that type of the type of person you know kind of like a pretty high iq high eq person that's fun to work with yeah in my experience i I think i've been really lucky with the teams that i've worked in and the places i've worked as well but um it's exactly like that and i learned so the, the labs project that I did uh, and the, the civilian military project that I did, the two that I mentioned there, the teams I worked with in those were amazing. So um, the, the labs project at Chatham House, there were three of us. I was the most junior person by a long way. Um, but um, the, two, the two senior people that I worked with were two of the most senior people in the program. Um, you know, one was a very, very senior civil servant in his previous job. He's a professor um, he worked, you know, at a high level in the World Health Organization. And the other person, she also worked for a very high level in the World Health Organization. She was a serious journalist before that. You know, these, these people have sort of 20, 30 years more experience than me as well. So with, and, and more in some cases. So it was just the three of us, um, you know, working week to week on that, on that project for, you know, three or four years. Um, and then we would travel to the country together and then work with all these other senior experts that we pulled together. So it was, yeah, like really intelligent people, really switched on, really um, good to work with, really focused. And um, so that was an amazing experience. Um, and, and on the Civ Mill project that I'm doing, I just wrapped up now. <laughs> I work, that was actually a collaboration with Johns Hopkins. So um, I moved across from the Chatham House team to the Hopkins team. Um, although we'll skip over that part. <laughs> We're all friends now. 
Um, but so the, the team I worked with at um, Chatham House, it was me and then an admiral and um, a lieutenant general. So they, one was the surgeon general and one was his deputy. So the sort of responsible for the, the military health services across all arms of the armed forces. So Navy, Air Force and Army. So like the, you know, the top two star general type, type people. Um, so, you know, they're very senior military people who were retired. Um, so I was working with them and then a couple of other people in the team. Um, so we had an intern who just finished his medical degree, who was amazing, um, who I would have loved to keep, but he's actually gone over to the consulting side now. Um, but so, yeah, but, so yeah, I was working in a team of two extremely high level military personnel who are retired. Um, me, a doctor who was an intern at the time, who was just a really switched on guy. Um, and then our other, other people in our team, like our coordinator, who's lovely and she's really smart and switched on person as well. She's a lawyer. Um, and then the Hopkins team, again, who I work with now, who are amazing. Um, so yeah, you, it's exactly like you say, small teams, really smart, really switched on people, um, who, who have, in my experience, been really good to work with. Um, I'm sure that's not always the case, but I think it does attract, you know, intelligent and mission driven people for sure. And I, and I've been lucky that I've, you know, I've, I've always got on with the people I've worked with and they've been, they've been great to, to work and travel with and, you know, hang out with after the meetings and all that kind of stuff. And just super interesting people. It just makes such a difference. Like I've often thought that like, um, you know, it doesn't, obviously it's great if you can be working on something like super interesting that you're passionate about, but if you aren't, but the people are good, then it's fine because you're going to have a good time anyway, if you're working with smart, interesting um kind people so i'm interested here so you're talking about there like some of the people that you're working with who have kind of had separate careers and you are now working with so talk to me a bit about like what paths exist into working uh, both kind of into working in a think tank right so maybe more so at the um earlier stages of a career right so how does somebody in their 20s or 30s end up working in a think tank and this may be really varied and that's okay and then similarly like what are the paths out right like what do typically what do people typically go on to do afterwards i will speak to sort of that international affairs and global health space um just because that's what my experience is um but generally uh it can be very difficult to break into think tanks, especially the sort of top level ones. Um, and that's because there, there aren't huge numbers of entry level roles available every year. And because it's a, you know, lots of these are registered charities or NGOs, there's not lots of money around to, you know, have grad schemes and have these big programs. It's not like, um, you know, in the private sector where you can have a grad scheme entry of, you know, dozens or hundreds of people every year and sort of churn them through. So the entry-level positions do tend to be quite few and far between. Um, at Hopkins, we we have a lot of people that work that are doing their master's or their PhDs that will then work with the centre as student researchers. Um, so that allows them to sort of get, to, get some work experience, get to know the teams, um, and then some of those move across when analyst positions are available and they have... Um, finish their studies so that's one something that happens at Hopkins 
Um, and I think a lot of American universities have sort of options for that kind of thing. Um, and I know even in the UK, actually, some people might do some research assistant work with a professor while they're doing their studies. But again, those opportunities are quite few and far between and ad hoc. Um, internships are one of the best ways to get in. Um, so at Chatham House, they had a, an internship program, which is paid uh, London living wage, because a lot of institutes offer unpaid internships, um, which is a whole, which uh, has a lot of difficulties with it, especially um, for people that can't afford to work for free, which is quite a few people. <laughs> um, but Chat yeah, Chatham House had an internship program, which is actually how I joined. So I finished my master's, was fortunate enough to get a, a position as an intern, and then stayed on in a junior position that happened to be available at the time, and then eventually moved from a consultant to a staff position to a permanent position. But it's um, it's it is difficult to break into, and I, I sort of I won't sugarcoat that because. I'll give you an example of some of the numbers. So I used to do uh, recruitment, um, the recruitment processes for our, our team. So I'd hire analysts and associates and interns. Um, we would, in the global health program, we'd re regularly get sort of 200 applications for one internship position. Um, our international, the international security uh, team at Chatham House once had 450 applications for one position, I think. Um, and this is sort of a three to six month paid position. Um, but it's, it is competitive. And a lot of those applications are very, very strong as well. Um, but, um, you know, those are available a couple of times a year. Lots of other institutions offer similar kinds of schemes. Um, and I think any kind of research experience, coordination experience, um, administrative experience can be translated to, to be relevant to working in a think tank as well. Um, so, if people are still at university and they um, they can volunteer with student organizations and coordinate meetings there, do extra research projects, things like that, that can all help uh, build a CV to be a an attractive applicant for an internship. But it's very, it is very difficult to get in just because of the numbers. Um, and there, you know, there are a lot of people that would be brilliant that might be unsuccessful. So I do think people who are trying to to break into think tank or research institutes you have to be persistent and have a thick skin because you will get rejected a lot and i mean I, when i was doing my masters i applied for dozens of things and didn't hear back from any of them um so you just have to keep trying until you get in um and you you get a break um but there are there are lots of other things that you can do even if it's not um even if it's not you know, your first choice think tank or some, somewhere like Chatham House or Johns Hopkins, you know, you, there are other places you can get relevant experience. Um, so not entirely sunshines and rainbows on the, the entry answer. Um, but uh, I mean, moving from the very entry level from the internship position, um, we, you know, you often people are hired across who have research assistant or research analyst or coordination experience from other charity sector um, organizations or other NGOs where there's translatable skills. Um, and I think it depends what the institutes are focused on and what you've been working on and how that aligns, um, that kind of thing. Mm. I'm interested if, um, so it's obviously like a super high demand role and it's attractive to the types of people who are 
you know, coming out of uni probably with great grades and great experience and everything else. And they're weighing up other options, like maybe it's consulting or banking or, you know, something else. How does it compare from a compensation perspective? It is significantly different. Um, so you're never, you're never going to be on the same level as sort of uh, private sector money in think tanks. Um, I'm, it's not terrible, but it is sort of the charity sector. It is an NGO. Um, I think the civil service is a, a reasonable comparison, but there are different benefits there. Um, so you probably you probably get paid more as a civil servant um, and have better benefits um, depending on which um, which organisation you're with. Um, so I mean, entry level positions could be sort of twenty six to thirty k, um, and Direct, you know, even directors are unlikely to be, you know, much more than a hundred and something, you know. So the the pay scale is very much aligned to that charity NGO sector, um, but depending on where you work and how disciplined you are, you can have a good work life balance. There's a you do really interesting and rewarding work. You can have an impact. Um, you work with amazing people, and you you do get a lot of uh, um, good opportunities out of it. So, and you mentioned about what, you know, what are the exit opportunities or sort of the stepping stones. So a lot of people might, um, and some people might do this before or after as well. So you might, typically in, in international affairs stuff, people might move from a think tank to the civil service um, or to a multilateral organization. So they might move to NATO or to the WHO um, or, you know, any other UN agency or organization. And they might move to another think tank. They might decide to move into academia, become a professor, um, or they might, they might decide that they want to get paid more and move across to consulting. Um, and that, that is quite common in, in different areas as well. Um, or whether that's sort of management consulting or especially in climate, climate issues, there's a lot of movement between think tanks and some of the big consultants, uh, consultancies. Um, and then in other, you know, area studies, if you're in um, the Russian Eurasia program, sometimes people might move into risk advisory consulting or business intelligence, that kind of stuff. Um, so that there are different options and people move both ways as well. Often people might move from the civil service to a think, to a think tank or from academia to a think tank or from a multilateral. So I think it's they're all kind of linked up and you can do it before or after. Um, but those are the kinds of things that I see people in my areas or, or related areas moving into or moving from. Very interesting. Um, and even just from what I've learned today, it seems like you know, if you work at one of these places uh, for a number of years, like you're developing a set of skills and capabilities. They're actually relatively broadly applicable to like lots of other roles. So there probably are lots of interesting opportunities for people down the road i'm interested so one thing that's kind of on my mind right is like if you look at a lot of people you know say in their 20s or in their 30s or any age really um something that's where a lot of my friends are going is into tech companies and startups and that's where i worked for you know the last four years and one of the big attractions of those seems to be like this um the culture, right? The culture of it's extremely flexible and working from home and you can wear your shorts and you can get massages at lunch. And it's, you know, this very like forward thinking, like progressive, like culture. Um, 
that that people are attracted to, and I, and I completely understand why. Um, where do you think tanks sit on the spectrum? And the reason I ask is because like, if I go to the website of some of these think tanks, they they can feel a bit stuffy, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that's if that's reality or if it's just the website. <laughs> I think it depends entirely on the institution as well, and I would I think also as a lot of places are not that good at keeping their website up to date, um, for instance. So some of them still look pretty old school. Um, but, you know, some of them are. But I think um, there's definitely a move towards um, trying to be more flexible and that be something that think tanks can offer as well. Um, I mean, it's very easy to look at somewhere like the Royal Institute of International Affairs and think that it's a sort of stuffy place of, of um, old blokes in smoking rooms. Um, but... I, I know I'm talking a lot about Chatham House, but I, you know that's why I, I, I did a lot of work before. But um, you know they're really good at they've been really good at sort of trying to embrace um, hybrid working, um, changing the the setups of the building so there's more spaces for um, you know people to meet up and brainstorm and have a more engaging space in that sense. So I think while there are elements of traditionalism in some of these places, a lot of them are embracing more. Um, startupy ways of working um and i think a lot of organizations are generally coming out of the pandemic right i mean my role now i work for um an american university in baltimore but i'm based in london so i'm fully remote um but there's i've got one other colleague here who fortunately lives around the corner from me so we meet up um but i go out to the us a, a few times a year and i do a lot of international work anyway so um that doesn't matter too much but say five years ago it would, you know, I never would have been able to be in this role working from London for Johns Hopkins. Um, Are there any like quote unquote like startup think tanks? You know, any ones that were kind of founded um, quite recently who, you know, do things a bit differently, or is it, or does it tend to be kind of the Chatham House and John Hopkins that that you know dominate the space? So. I mean, the, the the oldest ones are obviously the most well-established and have historical links and yeah, they've got all the top experts and all that kind of stuff. But um, there are there are new and innovative um, think tanks as well. Um, and of course, like in different sectors, there's, there's bound to be loads that I'm not aware of. But just one that I, I am aware of, I, I've met with their director a couple of times, is there's a one called the Centre for Long-Term Resilience, um, which was spun out, two, I think two people spun out of UK government and sort of said, a bit frustrated with working in the civil service, we want to set up our own think tank. So they they set up a, up a think tank that works on these big risk issues, so the AI and biosecurity. Um, and they're, they, I think they've only been around for three or four years now, but they're growing and trying to do things in a different way. But I do think even, I, I, I don't want to speak for them either, but... They're, they're a group that I've noticed um, as doing something new and they seem to be um, pretty well connected now and, and building a good reputation. So it is possible to do things in a startup way. But then I think fundamentally, the kind of work that these institutions need to do is, is always going to be quite similar in that it's convening, it's connecting, it's um, uh, influencing policymakers, it's, it's um, writing reports, it's getting policy recommendations together so maybe that's me being too stuffy maybe there are new and different ways to to do things but um i think 
it, even with the new startups, it's still similar kinds of work. Um, but I will actually add that even when I was at Chatham House and, and with Hopkins as well, um, P, institutions are shifting to new ways of disseminating information. So, you know, not many people are going to read a 40-page report, even if they're interested in it. Um, you need shorter pieces of, you know, shorter documents. You need videos. You need podcasts. You need um, clips that are shareable and digestible. You need to engage with people on different social media platforms. Um, and I think even a lot of the big traditional think tanks like Chatham House or or Rusi or IISS, um, they're all shifting to doing more, shifting to doing more of that. Um, and trying to engage people in different ways and trying, and again, like we were speaking about at the start, it's about knowing who your audience is. If you're trying to influence a minister, then maybe you need a, a one page uh, briefing document they can get on their desk. If you're trying to um, make the general public aware or people under 30 aware about a particular issue, then you need to share a, a minute long video on, on Instagram or on Twitter or, uh, or other social media platforms. And to get people talking, you need engaging bits of content. So I think people are shift, organizations are shifting to try and do more of that when they're targeting different audiences. That's a good point. Um, so you've, I know you work in kind of uh, one broad area, but you've had the chance over the last number of years to see lots of different areas, right? Whether that be ones that you've worked on directly or even just, you know, within the organization that you worked in or even that you've just heard about, right? So is there a specific area that you think is just particularly interesting right now? Like, you know, obviously the hot, sexy topic is AI, like you mentioned, or, um, you know, is there something that you're like, oh my God, I just think that's so interesting right now? There are so many of those. Um, like like you said, AI is the big one. Um, and I think AI and cyber issues and how they in, impact everything uh, are, in, uh, are those big, interesting areas. But I think it's really hard to single out a specific issue because there's there are so many things that I think are important right now. Um, I'm always, what I find quite interesting as well, and which some of my colleagues work on, is sort of how technology, um, social media, and information is shared and how that impacts the world. So looking at sort of dis and misinformation, I just think that has such far reaching consequences for everyone. And you can pair that in with AI as well. Um, how, how that influences elections, how it influences societies, how it influences how people in their, you know, in their own countries or own areas see each other or see people in other countries, how it shapes the way we think um, about different issues. I just think that is, such a big uh a big thing i know obviously distant misinformation has been around for forever um but the the way that people can be targeted and influenced through social media now i i just it's starting to catch up with us but i think there's a there's a, a serious uh serious amount that needs to be done to to sort that out um is there anything that, you know, any one thing that you learned or perspective that you gained that, um, you know, the majority of people would be blown away by um, or that might really surprise people, like, if you told them? Um, there's probably a few of those things. Um, I, I, always, I always think, talking about 
um, social media and disinformation, which isn't particularly my area. It's just something that I find interesting. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that a lot of the um, disagreements and arguments and um, nasty comments that you see online aren't by real people. They're just by bots that other that malicious actors are using to try and make people upset and to try and waste people's energy and to try and create division. Um, there, I think there's a lot more of that than people realize. Um, so, you know, malicious actors trolling with bots. So when you see, you go on Twitter and you see, you know, Juki 6743201 says, says something controversial about migrants or about, um, a, you know, a minor, minority group or about Brexit or about something. A lot of the time that is just going to be a bot or, um, um, some like a sponsored malicious actor trying to make an issue. Who? What types of people are behind those? Well, Russia and Iran and China are all quite hot on their division. Um, Russia specifically, um, especially with sort of there, there, there are some people that are paid to run hundreds of accounts and just post argumentative comments online. Some of them are automated as well, but you'll have someone like that putting it putting it something argumentative out. And then someone well-meaning like you or me might go, well, this isn't on. That's totally unacceptable. And quote it and screenshot it and share it to all our friends. And we'll all get really upset and angry about it and be like, oh, why are people like this? Uh, and then get really upset about the state of society. And then some of the time that is just manufactured to make us feel like that. Okay. That actually has blown my mind. I mean, like I did know there were bots, but like when you put it, when you put it in that perspective, right. And I, cause I literally had that conversation with somebody today where somebody was like, Oh, I, I can't believe that there are these people in the world who just go on and they just comment negative things about people that they don't even know. Um, and I'm like, of course that person could be real or a bot. I don't know, but it's like, this was a whole conversation and I don't think it occurred to either of us that actually that person could very well not be real. Or that account, you know. But don't get me wrong; real people do that as well, which is why it's so insidious. Um, so I'm not. I'm not trying to say that no one in our society says these horrible things or is nasty. But um, it's just, if you think about it, like how easy is that just to rile people up, and how much energy do you waste getting upset by that, and how much time, and then you talk about it, and then you feel more disconnected from the the people in your own country because of that. And if you think about hybrid warfare, like how to sort of undermine a culture or a society and how easy that is through social media, um, it's kind of mind-blowing. It, it really is. Do you have any more, considering how good that one was? I well, linked link to that one um, is this concept of astroturfing, um, which is where you, where a malicious actor will create a fake grassroots movement. That's why it's AstroTurf, because it's sort of fake grass, if that makes sense. So you'll get, a, you know, a malicious actor will start riling people up and saying, we need to go on a march about this. You know, for instance, it might be an anti-vaccine march, you know, make up some misinformation, say, oh, we need to get people going, get a march on this. And then a few other bots will engage. And then some real people will start engaging and going, yeah, actually, this is this is right. I agree with this. So then they find out the people that actually believe that and actually think those kinds of things, and then they start getting people together. And then before you know it, you have a grassroots event that has been made by 
something completely fake. That's insane. That's actually insane. It's very scary. Scary, isn't it? But you, when you think about it, you can see how easy it is to do that. 100%. Have you read um, the book Revolt of the Public? I recommend it. It's really good. It's written by... Um, is written by a guy who was a media analyst for the CIA for like, um, I think like 30 or 40 years. And his whole insight was that when he started out, he could monitor, he could basically get a sense of, you know, um, the perception of a society or, you know, what that society was thinking about by reading like three or four main papers in every country around the world. And that was his job. Like he would wake up, read the papers in all these countries and then be able to report pretty accurately and like what the mood of the, um, the country was and um, but then over the course of his career had that obviously social media and online news completely disrupted that and how information moves in such a different way right now and all of the impacts of that and it's like a relatively simple concept but when you read it you're like like similar to kind of the stories that you're telling me here i'm like oh my god this is this is crazy this is really insane and if, if you think about it i mean 15 years ago we didn't use social media in that way you know it just wasn't a thing and how much that has changed and how much we use social media now sometimes for amazing things but how it also allows bad actors to do things like that i think is really troubling because we that kind of stuff has been um used to influence um all different things from votes in elections um you know it's been proven to have happened in the u.s election we know that it happened with brexit as well a lot um and there were you know let's not get into that but you know that misinformation campaigns and that kind of stuff were used to influence the public during those kinds of votes it was used to undermine public health responses during covid to make people not want to um take various precautions or take back take the vaccine and, and do other things like this so it can be used for anything. I just think there's, it's really, it's really troubling the damage that that kind of that kind of uh, activity can can cause, and how our sort of our sort of as a society, our our social media literacy isn't up there enough to recognise it or even know that people would do that. I mean, if you haven't, if you're not involved in communities that talk about that, why would you ever think you know that a, a malicious actor, a country, or a, a a, a terrorist organization potentially might be trying to do these things. It's obviously is connected to health and health security as well, because of how it can undermine public health um, responses. But that's a little bit more on the security side of things rather than most of the stuff that I do. But it's something that I think about quite a lot because um, all of my background, my academic background is in international security and international relations, um, which is why I focus on the sort of security elements of global health work. But that, yeah, that's something I've always, that hybrid warfare element of things is something that I've always been interested in. And some of my colleagues in different institutions work on that stuff, but I keep up with some of the work that they do. But it's, um, yeah, it, it's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. It is. It definitely is. Um, so on a slightly different note, actually a very different note, I've probably got two more, que two more questions, two more questions before we wrap up. So you give me a great overview of... Um, a lot of the the work that you do on a day-to-day -day basis but also kind of the structure of that industry but i'm interested more from like um like a life side of things so this could be work relationships all this 
you know, other stuff that you do in hobbies. Do you have like a life philosophy or a set of structures that kind of guide you when making decisions? I was thinking about this. I don't think it's anything rigid, um, but I've always been someone that thought that sort of experiences and relationships matter. So doing doing things that you remember, connecting with people, um, building friendships, and I mean, like you know how, how and I think how we met, for instance, is a perfect example of that. You know, taking the opportunity to to go abroad, meet new people, go on your own. So trying to make the most out of every opportunity and every situation in that sense um, is one it is one thing. But um, if we talk about sort of a a, a work perspective, I, it's all I've always wanted to have a balanced life. So I didn't want everything to be about work, and I always wanted to have something that was intellectually stimulating and rewarding and had a net positive impact for the for society or the world or however you look at it. So I didn't want to. Um, go into just sort of private sector work and the and again i don't want to there's not a slight on private sector work it's very important it keeps the economy going but um for me i always i was always public sector focused so if i wasn't going to join the military i wanted to join the foreign office or a think tank or you know that kind of stuff um so doing things that are intellectually stimulating that have a net benefit for uh you know someone else society the world whatever scale you want to put it on um something that you can create memories and good experiences from and connect with people through. Um, and I kind of try and do that through everything I do. Um, I, I also think back to some of the, like the core values you, we get taught in rugby and some of the, or at least the clubs that I've been in sort of like leave your environment better than you found it. Um, is something that always sticks with me. Um, whether that's an interaction with a person or the work that you do, or even just going somewhere, you know, in the changing room, make sure you clean it up afterwards. If you if you meet up with someone, make sure that you leave them feeling better than when you found them. If you if you're doing some work, make sure that it ha- that it, it has a positive impact. Um, so I think that's something that I try and take in take into everything I do. Mm. That's really nice, actually. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, and and then on the balance side of things, what are some of the things that you do outside of work that bring you the most enjoyment? I have found over the years that I, if I don't exercise, I will quickly feel very bad very quickly. Um, and I like to have structure as well, especially, again, talking about rugby, having played at various levels for so long and it becomes part of your identity. And you and, and for context, for listeners, um, you know, I started playing when I was about 11 and I retired when I was 25 or 26. Um, and you're playing five or six times a week um you're always with the same people you you know it's part of your identity it's part of who you are it, you get up and do it when you don't want to and then you feel better afterwards you do it for other people you do it for you as well so um when i quit rugby i did notice quite quickly that not having that structure was quite detrimental for me so then i eventually found running um and i found that having goals and, and you know whether it's a race or a distance or whatever helped me structure training and I was like I have to do this session because if I don't then I'm not going to be able to get to this this goal or this target and then that sort of brought the structure back for me and meant oh I can't miss this session because you know I, I know I need to build up my fitness so that I can run this marathon or this ultra marathon or whatever it might have been right I mean, you're just brushing over all the ultra marathon like you know it's like a Sunday 5k <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we we can we can get into that in more detail if you like. But I think it's something that I almost took for granted. And that when you're in a team environment, um, and it's you're you're knackered. It's raining. It's seven p.m. It's December. It's there's ice on the ground, and you're like, I don't really want to go to training tonight, but you have to because there's twenty, thirty other blokes that have turned up, and you've got to do it to for the team. So you do it, and then you always feel better afterwards. But then when you leave that environment, not having that structure, not having that that um, motivation, it's very easy to then go, oh, I'll just skip this one. I'll go for a beer instead. So then I found, yeah, having those, having a race in there, having a goal, and then making that my sport gave me structure again. And then that made made sure I did the sessions. And then, you know, I met a whole new group of people through that, uh, a whole new experience. Um, so that brings me a lot of happiness. And I think the structure of it as well does as well um, to make sure that I you know, get my exercise in, get out, do things when I don't want to do them as well. Um, so I think, yeah, running, I do a lot of, um, uh, what else do I do? Um, just obviously I'm a very social person as well, which is a bit um, contradictory now that I've taken a fully remote job. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, I like, I, I like getting out and meeting up with people and I do a lot of mentoring with, you know, former interns and colleagues as well. So on a professional level, I'm meeting up with, um, one of the, one of the interns I used to work with uh, in a couple of weeks time. Um, also obviously with friends, you know, the usual stuff. Um, I do a bit of volunteering. So I said to you offline, that I'm getting married in June. So I volunteer with the church that we're getting married at, um, and help out with the sort of Every Monday, there's a we do a, a two-course meal for people experiencing homelessness or people on low incomes. So I go there, and I'm a table host, and I sort of serve people the food, and we have a chat and serve drinks and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I do that when I can, but it's maybe once a month or every other month at the moment because I'm away every couple of weeks. But that I find that really rewarding as well, which, is, again, it goes back to that sort of philosophy that – you know, unstructured, unofficial philosophy that I was talking through with you is that, you know, trying to make an impact where you can or leave things better than they were before you came along. Um, so yeah, that, I find that really rewarding and I find it very, it makes me very, very grateful and really appreciative of how fortunate I am as well. When I, when I do that, it, it always hits home quite hard. Um, so that, that's, that's a, a good thing. And also meet amazing people that you wouldn't otherwise with amazing stories as well. Um, yeah. So it's always very rewarding. And I always learn something whenever I go to the, uh, the feast on Monday nights. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that's, I find that very rewarding. Yeah. I love that. It's like, um, you know, you spent all day <laughs> working on some of the biggest like policy issues that might face humanity. And then, uh, on Monday evenings, you just, you, you haven't got enough of helping the world and even in a better place, you got to go and do a little bit extra. But 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 I think, I, I don't know if you find this, like I obviously have not worked in kind of uh, this industry for you, but I do think there's an, a difference between, uh, like I worked at a not-for-profit for a year and although technically you're making like a huge, um, you are making a very big impact. When I was, like, I was in the core team, right? Like in like a strategy function. So it's like, you're not on the front line. So, even though you are technically making a big impact because you're changing how this whole organization works with tens of thousands of people, um, you, you don't feel it as much because you're not on the ground 
doing it. Like you're not actually dealing with these people. So it's a different kind of feeling I find. This is, that is such an important point as well, which I think links back to what we're talking earlier in terms of the impact that you make. How can you see it? And if you're working in a, excuse me, if you're working in an international affairs think tank on big ticket issues, you may never be, you, you'll probably never be able to quantify the impact that you've had. Whereas if you're a, a paramedic or a nurse or a doctor and you treat one person, you know, I've done that and I've made this tangible impact on, on someone. But then I speak to, you know, doctors who who've say maybe worked in A and E and did that hands-on clinical work, and they go, "Yeah, this is great. I I've saved this number of people, but I want to make the big ticket changes so that I can improve the lives of thousands of people." So there's always that sort of how can I make more impact? Am I am I making impact? Am I doing the right thing here? Am I putting myself to the best use or not? And I think it's it's just important to remember that you're part of um uh, you're part of a bigger system that's working towards bigger change even though that's harder to feel or quantify because it's not tangible um but for some people that can be frustrating and you know at times it definitely is i'm I'm sure a lot of my colleagues would agree that you don't feel like you're saving the world sometimes (laughs) you feel like you're just you know writing papers and you know going through the motions but i think you've got to keep perspective as well and you've got to believe in what you're doing and and hope that you are pushing things in the right direction. And then if you don't feel like that, then maybe you need to think, well, how could I change what I'm doing or what we're doing or, or move so that I can be making that impact. But it's definitely something to be conscious of because it sounds, yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't want to be presenting myself as some kind of saint doing all this amazing stuff. Um, but it's, it's, it is easy to feel disconnected and be like, well, I could be doing humanitarian work or I could be yeah, doing something more direct and more tangible. But I think that's one of those things you've got to uh, fight with and, and balance and, and rationalize when you do that, that kind of higher level strategic or further removed work. But it's, it's an important point. Listen, Ben, I think that's a great spot for us to finish up. So um, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, humoring all of my questions and give me a crash course in everything about think tanks and you know your own work and your life I've really really enjoyed it uh, absolute pleasure thank you for having me on um, and just having the opportunity to talk about all this kind of stuff I hope it's been understandable and not too convoluted because I know at times some of this stuff is complex and I hope I've been clear but it, it's been really really good fun and great to see you again as well super awesome thanks Ben I hope you enjoyed that chat that I just had with Ben. There's a couple of things that I particularly took away from it. Um, The first one was, it's just so clear talking to him that he gets a real sense of satisfaction from the work that he does. And it's really an intrinsic sense of satisfaction. I think there's two parts of that that I just picked up from my chat with him. So the first one is that he seems just genuinely interested in the types of topics that he covers, right? And so he gets to nerd out on this stuff all day. And that's so cool. It's so nice when the reward of the work that you do is the work itself. And I feel like, I I didn't ask him, but I feel like this, you know, in the evenings or the weekends, like he's reading up on this stuff that he ends up working on anyway. And I think that's really cool to hear. And frankly, I'm I'm quite jealous. Um, And I think the second thing that I really took away was that it's clear that he enjoys having 
a positive impact on the world. And we throw that term around a lot. I don't think that everybody has to want that. I really don't. And it's a conversation for another day. But he feels that that's important to him. And he knows that that he's able to do it or make that impact from his job. And I think that allows him to live a very coherent life where his values and what he thinks are important is reflected in the work that he does every day. I think that leads to some of that satisfaction that he feels in his role. On that point of impact, though, he makes a really good point around the type of impact that you have. So I think there's kind of two sides of quote-unquote impact that you can have. The first one is the hands-on impact. So this is like a doctor. A doctor can treat, you know, one person at a time, but they can make that person feel better, right? They can directly change that person's outcomes. Now, on the other side of that spectrum, you've got a much bigger scale, but less hands-on to like the work that Ben will do. So Ben's not treating any patients or fixing any one person on a day-to-day basis, but he's doing really important work that might shift policy that has the potential of helping, you know, millions or billions of people. And neither of those is right or wrong. But if you want to make an impact, I think what's important to realize is which one feels better to you. Because he talked about doctors who were having this really big one-to-one impact, but they actually just, they felt that they needed scale. They wanted to make things move at a bigger scale and to have leverage on their time and their work. And that was important to them. So some doctors have shifted. And when we interviewed Imran um, on one of our previous episodes, that was kind of some of his thinking. Um, But on the flip side of it, some people who might work in, say, somewhere like a think tank or a big NGO, they might actually be doing all this work, but not feeling it because they're not meeting the people day to day. And I felt that, right? So I worked at an NGO for like nine months and I was in the strategy department. And you do all these really impactful work that you know is going to have a lot of impact um, at scale. Like it could be any kind of work, like you're still just sitting behind an Excel model or a research or writing a memo. And so it just doesn't feel any different to any other kind of work. And that was the case for me. And so I think it's just worth reflecting when you think about wanting to have an, uh, a positive impact, which two ends of that spectrum or which end of those of that spectrum do you want to play at? What makes you feel good? Um I love just hearing about his day-to-day, right? I thought he gives such a great explanation, right? He's doing a lot of research, whether that's reading or talking to people. He's spending a lot of time writing, depending on what stage of the project he's at. And then, of course, there's just an organizational side as well, whether that's meeting with his team or planning trips or planning events. And I thought he'd just give a really good overview of what that specific day or week in his role might look like. One thing that he brought up that really resonated with me and we talked about it was how much he enjoys just working with smart people. And for me, that's really important. People will say it a lot. It's all about the people who you work with. And I think that's so, so true. It's the biggest thing that I enjoyed at McKinsey's that I'm just in this room with smart people. Yes, they're high IQ, but they're also high EQ. And it's just fun being able to work with them. It didn't really matter what problem it was that we were trying to solve. It was just fun on a day-to-day basis. And this conversation with Ben reminded me how much that I value that. 
So those are a couple of the things that I just found most interesting from the conversation. I hope you found it helpful. Um, if you did and you want more of this, go and follow this podcast on Instagram. So it's at Two Roads Pod. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn, just under my name, Steve Duke. I shared lots of content to help people figure out what job it is that's going to bring them the most happiness in the world and then to actually make that a reality. That's all for today. I'll see you next week for the next episode of The Two Roads.